midday knowledge. Hello, my name is Onopa Chirumovaiwa and I am the program coordinator for the FVZS Institute. And I'm so pleased to welcome you to the Midday Knowledge Podcast. This podcast was pre-recorded as part of our Midday Knowledge sessions. Enjoy. Um, today, I will be introducing um, the speakers and just give a brief contextualization. Rather, maybe I must say Zambili and I will be introducing the speakers. Um, like I said, thank you for joining us. A warm welcome to the keynote speakers, Saseko and Tembaletu, who will be joining us. Let, let me start with saying what the, the topic is. So, um, just student support frameworks in the South African University is um, the conversation that the two main speakers will be engaging us on. And I think this is still part um, of our inspirational leadership through social justice lens um, that we are having. Let me also say that the Human Rights Month is a commemoration um, to remind us of the South African uh, sacrifices that was made and that was um, that accompanied the struggle to attain democracy in South Africa. Uh, I think the, the main uh, themes is the social justice. And um, I, was, I was given this beautiful tagline that really just encapsulates um, social justice. It says that justice is the concept of fairness. Social justice is fairness as it manifests in society. And social justice is about working towards that um, equal society. So, um, yes, I think without further ado, I'm going to give over to Zambili, who will moderate this conversation, um, maybe just to emphasize again, the topic is just student support frameworks in the South African University. And um, our two speakers will be talking on that. Thank you, Zambili. Thank you very much, Joy, and good day to everyone. I see we have a full house, which is very exciting. And I'm very glad that we can actually see your face, Siseko. So excited about that. Now, Siseko is a lecturer at the University of Fort Hare within the philosophy department, and he's currently busy with quite a challenging journey, his PhD, wherein he interrogates belonging and national identity in South Africa. He is a recipient of the Harvard South African Fellowship commencing in September 2022, which sounds extremely prestigious. Sisego is a man in God in top 200 young South African from the 2020 category in which, sorry, in the category of education, and he holds a Master's of Arts cum laude in political philosophy from the University of Pretoria's Department of Political Sciences. His research and teaching interests center around themes of education, decolonization in the South African Academy, and he also served as the founding editor-in-chief of the Journal of Decolonizing Disciplines and has presented his research at world-leading institutions. He has spoken at Duke University Center for International and Global Studies and further lectured at Karol Karolinska Institute, which is in Sweden, and under his master's in global health, teaching about de decolonizing global health. You know, that was a mouthful and very impressive. And just so you know, this is a summary of what is a lot longer than what I what, what is actually there. 
So I'm very, very excited to hear you sharing your thoughts and intellect with us, Kumalo. Therefore, I welcome you to start with your presentation. Sisega Kumalo, you may go ahead. All right. Thank you, colleagues. Um, I, I don't have a presentation because we had intended this discussion to be more of an informal conversation, really, for the purposes of um, making it available to other colleagues at a later stage. But what I am going to do, um, colleagues, is that I am going to be speaking then from a paper that I had shared uh, with um, all of us uh, or the organizing team members as well as my colleague Utambaletu, um, just so that I can be I can be able to sort of have a bit of a more structured conversation as opposed to just um, you know chatting about. And again, I'm going to ask um, for 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 the uh, moderator to to really keep to keep the time for us. I'm going to read the abstract of the paper um, and then I am going to go into sort of a conversational engagement with the paper. I can't really see what's happening on the other end because of this whole digitization thing. I have gone uh, with a, what is it, with reading the, the text off of my screen. So I'm on, I'm on Word at the moment. So if anything is amiss, please just shout. Um, so the paper's titled Pedagogic Obligation in Developing a Decolonial and Contextually Responsive Philosophical Approach. The paper comes from a course that I taught last year, third year level, and it's a culmination, of course. I'm certain we've got a couple of, um, we've got academics in the room, I'm certain of that. Um, and it's a culmination really of thinking that I have been doing around what is the purpose of of a South African university. And I distinguish here, colleagues, between a university in South Africa and a South African university, right? Um, and I think that a South African university is an institution that's locally responsive, that understands the fact that our students will come from the likes of, for instance, here in, 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 in uh, East London, our students will come from your Selvins, your Beacon Bays, but they'll also come from in Tanzania, for example, right? Uh, in the context of our main site campus, which is in Alice, as the University of Port Hare, uh, it, a, a South African university is conscious of the fact that our students are located in deep, deep rurality. And, and, and what does that mean for us in terms of how we teach and, and of course, how we support students, right? So a lot of us tend to go around punting this whole chat of epistemic access and decolonization, but what does that actually tangibly mean? And I came to this paper as a result of seeing how the sector was failing. Colleagues, we actually failed our students during the pandemic. And I believe we continue to fail our students to a certain extent because we have an idealized conception of who and what we are as the South African University, which is to say that we have a conception of ourselves as a university in South Africa and not the South African University. And so this is where really the, 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 the ideas that we were grappling with with my students comes from. It comes from sort of dealing with this dilemma, right? To say, we have a problem here. How do we fix it? How do we respond to it? And we were speaking from our own uh, location in terms of the discipline of philosophy. But we went a step further and we said, okay, fine. We'll take a philosophical text and we'll locate it in conversation with a, an educational text, uh, 
Professor Jonathan Janssen's uh, Decolonization in Universities. And I understand that our good colleague nowadays is uh, at uh, Stellenbosch, actually, with a chair in education, if I'm not incorrect. Now, with the course to decolonize the philosophy curriculum and the university more generally, which have seen a series of intellectual interventions in South Africa, I take my cue from Ubongan in Yoga's recommendation when he suggests moving beyond thinking about decolonization. So I think about actually how do, how do we actually do this work? In reflecting on processes of decolonizing the curriculum, I consider the successes and failures of a course taught during a global pandemic, wherein pedagogic strategies are constrained. Reflecting on a module taught in the first semester of the 2021 academic year, I think through the fundamental question that underpins the course, primarily how to develop a contextually responsive philosophical approach on the southernmost tip of the African continent, using two primary texts, that is, my own decolonization as democratization and Jonathan Janssen's decolonization in universities. The module analyzed the question by juxtaposing a philosophical and educational text, respectively. In this pedagogic autocritique, I reflect on what obligation do we owe our students in a decolonizing context, right? So, so, so I'm thinking about a philosophically responsive approach, and I'm also saying, well, what do we owe our students fundamentally, right? And I think at the core of it, and, and, and maybe I can you know, keep quiet and sit down after this comment, at the core of it, I think we owe our students recognition, recognition of the context and the conditions in which they live and from which they come. Um, because again, I think we have an idealistic conception in our minds of who and what we are, without really thinking about actually where the hell are we as a South African context. And, and this is interesting as well, because I, I, you know, I, I, I've been to Stellenbosch, I think twice already. And, and it's so fascinating to me sometimes when you see the stark contradictions within, within that space, right? Driving into Stellenbosch, you're really greeted by stark and incredible poverty. Um, yeah, you know, like, Incredible, incredible poverty. And then you come into this lush, wealthy city, you know, that's that's this wealthy town that's really beautiful and that's absolutely stunning. And I think to a certain level, our students, especially our black students, experience a certain level of dis of, 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 of disconnection, as it were, because, because of those realities, right? And so the question that I ask then is to say, what do we owe our students? And I I, 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 as I say, the first thing there for me is that we owe our students recognition, and I go about that. I go about answering that by by by, by beginning with a response to an objection against the notion of obligation. Right. So, as a philosopher, I know many philosophers would say, "How dare you use obligation within the higher education space? We're not, you know, we're not dealing with invalids. We're not dealing with children. We're dealing with autonomous." young adults who have come into the walls of knowledge and learning in order to be able to acquire knowledge and learning um, within these spaces. And I think in as much as that is the case, right, Hannah Arendt really does a curious and beautiful thing where, she's, where she talks about joint responsibility, which is why I began with the question of the stark contradistinction between the geographies, right, coming into the town and what leads us coming into the town, right, what, what actually what, what welcomes you as you come into the town of Stellenbosch, as such an example. And Hannah Arendt suggests that we ought to take joint responsibility as intellectuals for the world that we inhabit. And she makes a very useful claim where she says that those who refuse to take joint responsibility for the world ought not be involved in the project of teaching children, nor should they have them, right? 
Um, and, and that's very, very interesting in the context of South Africa where you have first world pockets and then incredible and jarring third world realities for the majority in any case, right? And, and, and that's an interesting one if you think about the luxury and the comfort that intellectuals and academics enjoy. Specifically, this bothers me in the context of philosophy because you know what philosophers always say, oh, we're not interested in the conversations of the world. We, we think for thinking's sake. And I think that that's useful, yes, sure. I think it's absolutely very useful, but I think it's also weird. In, in, in a country where in July 2021, we had a near, I don't know, regime change as a result of people saying, actually, fuck it, apologies for my language. But really, people were fed up with the realities of being excluded from the pie that we intellectuals get to enjoy and get to... to, to, to really, really relish in, in, in ensconced in privilege and luxury, right? So, so I'm, I'm thinking about that and I'm saying to students, how's about we actually flip the script in the discipline? How's about we actually think about the realities of our context and the realities of our people and take the joint responsibility of the world that Hannah Arvind suggests to us in that paper of hers, The Crisis in Education, which was released in 1954. Now I want to con I'm, I'm, now I want to, to 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 go into a space where I'm concerning myself now with 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 this contextually responsive philosophical approach, specifically in the context of the post-colony, right? Now the post-colony is interesting for me because I I I write to the post-colony as post in parenthesis dash colony, right? And I say that oriented around contemporary trends in philosophy at third year level, the course sought to give students an insight into the debates that are constitutive of decolonial theory as it specifically plays out in the discipline of philosophy and more broadly in knowledge making and the knowledge economy. For this reason, the course drew from traditional philosophical texts, for instance, our own decolonization and democratization, Mabojo More's work on Vigo identity and uh, what is it, revolution, I believe it is, as well as Viwai Mudimbe's, um, what is it, the invention of Africa, Gnosis philosophy and the origins of knowledge, right? So. So those are the traditional philosophical texts that we were reading. And then, of course, we went and engaged more, not, what is it, more social scientific texts, literary theory texts, as well as educational texts, right? Which included the likes of Mungan Inyoka's The uh, Life and, what is it, The Social and Political Thought of Ajima Ferje, Jonathan Janssen's work, right? Uh, the Decolonization University's Marcia Milazzo's work, where she talks about the question of race and raciality within the context of the post-colony, really, as well as Mahmoud Mamdani's work uh, when he talks about university and reform. Now, Fonda Fleece, on writing on Zoe Wickham's collection of essays, focuses on the literary scape of South Africa, with the objective behind this inclusion of this work being to drive home the salient observation that I diagnose as a, death of as a dearth of imagination that subsequently leads to the death of theory, right? So if we can't imagine new worlds, because in any case, we are so actually disinterested and disaffected by the poverty that we see every time we drive into campus, that really means that we can't theorize our world sufficiently, right? And this is something that the students and I are thinking about. And again, what does it mean if I, as the academic who's teaching students who are coming from these contexts and not interested in the life conditions of my students, what does that mean, right? And this is why I had suggested the concept of just student support, right? So when we're thinking of student support, what 
in student support circles would be called wraparound support. When we're thinking about wraparound support, as a student is in my lecture theater, as Osiseko Kumalo who's teaching philosophy at third year level, what are the conditions that they're sitting with? Are they actually, are they fully nourished, such that they can focus on my class, or are they suffering from hunger pangs, as but an example, such that they are actually being like, oh, this dude is talking absolute nonsense, because right now I'm actually very hungry and I can't really focus on what the hell he's doing. And then you end up seeing students falling through the cracks, not because they're dumb, not because they're stupid, not because they don't understand philosophy, but because students are dealing with realities that I, as the lecturer, refuse to see, right? So when we're thinking about just student support, how do we take a holistic approach to the academic journey for the student in the sense of thinking about where are they coming from? How are they getting to campus? How are they getting to my lecture theater? When they are in my lecture theater, what are the conditions of possibility? that they see for themselves as a result of my own teaching strategies and methodologies, right? So, 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 so what I'm suggesting here is that if we engage with Zoe Wickham's work, Zoe Wickham's work, she's a literary theorist, as some of us might know, um, but Zoe Wickham does something very interesting because she says, okay, cool, you know, th this is the landscape that we have in South Africa, both in terms of literature, but as well as the real sociopolitical conditions. And I say, and I say that, what she really does for us is that she shows us that, you know, 20 somewhat, 30 somewhat years after that, after some of her essays were released, what we're suffering from as a country is a dearth of imagination that leads to the death of theory, which means we cannot really invent new worlds, not only for ourselves, but for future generations. Now, my review of the collection takes a pointed aim at my own discipline, which is philosophy. And I view, and I view philosophy as being divorced from the realities of the polity choosing to concern ourselves as philosophers, rather with the intellectual sophistication of abstract theory that does not really relate to the conditions of our students. While this view might be considered rational as placed, it is predicated on Wickham's suggestion that we need a radical pedagogy, a level of literacy that will allow our children to read works of literature that will politicize them into an awareness not only of power, but also of the equivocal, the ambiguous, and the ironic that is always embedded in power. This suggestion comes after we composes the salient question concerning the fate of blackness and indigeneity in a context that has for too long robbed blackness of ontological legitimacy, which of course, what is it, calls the ontological density of the black subject. Now Wickham inquires as follows. She says, how will black people long accustomed to dispossession and deprivation adjust to a new condition of not being racial victims? This is a very interesting question, but a naive question on her part, I would suggest. The combination of philosophical and educational along with social science theory texts was deliberate, as suggested by Wickham's recommendation of a, radical of a radical pedagogy, in that the course sought to answer the question of how to develop a contextual responsive philosophical approach. That is one that draws from and responds to the local issues that define the lives of contemporary citizens. The aims of the course gave credence to Wickham's inquiry, which is to say that if the scientific system of the country and more specifically philosophy as discipline fails to respond to the recognition of the ontological legitimacy of blackness and indigeneity, how will the majority adjust to the new condition? There is an objection that can be put against Wickham, however, in that her question concedes to the notion of South Africa as a post-colonial, now post-written as one word, post-colonial rather, written as one word, as a post-colonial context no longer defined by the majority as located at the receiving end of epistemic imposition, and cognitive injustice. The reality, of course, is the reverse. Ours is a post in parenthesis colony, 
and not a post-colony as seamlessly as Wickham would suggest it. My objection to Wickham's question is premised on the fact that the majority still exists under conditions of abject poverty, which is itself the result of the continuing rise of racial and economic inequality. Such an observation is what has led to this pedagogic autocritique, which seeks to understand the obligation that the philosopher owes to their students in a decolonizing context. Right? What do we owe our students? And as I say, I think we owe them recognition. In understanding and exploring this obligation, the reader of the course and this paper will be better positioned to respond to Wickham's question, a question that is itself a political and ontological consideration. Now, I would suggest that further justification for locating philosophical texts in conversation with social science theory is found in Mabuchamora's contention when he writes that the debate rages on in the present involving the process, uh, the, in, in involving in the process, rather, uh, exclusions or inclusions of philosophical discourses by self-appointed gatekeepers. So again, they are very powerful people within the academy, all across the country and all across disciplines, not only in philosophy, they're very powerful people who would suggest that looking at such questions is a non-starter, who would suggest that actually thinking about what we physically see as we drive onto campus is an issue that actually doesn't bother us. Because again, these are people who live very comfortably. These are people who are able to pay their bills, who don't even want, who are no longer paying for mortgages because they live on family estates that were paid off three or five generations ago. You know what I mean? These are people who, who live very good lives. Um, you know, colleagues all across the country who live very, very good lives and who are genuinely disaffected. And this showed up incredibly when the pandemic hit and we had to send students home, right? Where in, in our dining halls and in our residences, students had the ability, for instance, of accommodation, um, food, et cetera, et cetera. But when students went home, right, we still expected that they're going to show up and pitch up in our, what is it, in our blackboards and on our various teaching platform and our Zoom rooms, et cetera, as they used to show up in our lecture theatres. But we didn't consider, is the, is the student, does, what can, where is the student located? We didn't consider that. And it was very arrogant, I must admit, of all of us as academics and intellectuals. It was exceptionally, exceptionally arrogant because many of us thought, well, cut and paste, we're just going to take what we were going to do in class, we're going to do it online which is absolutely nonsensical. Now, these gatekeepers are the many white philosophers found across our departments in the country who are neither conversant with the realities of their students nor the social conditions under which said students exist. Here, it might be useful to mention, even in passing, the vocality of language to the extent that it facilitates an awareness of these conditions. Now, Ugunene puts it eloquently when he writes, the African philosophical system is not the only one that recognizes two levels in the cosmic order. Actually, let me skip that, right? He asks question, he says, uh, can philosophy have meaning without language? And such a question necessitates that one must answer what language or languages best serve the interests of cultural, social, and economic development within the African world. In other words, the issue is not language at all, but the philosophies and values that characterize the African world. So let me skip a couple of things here, because I want to get to the crux of this, really, um, to see... Now, let's go back to Wickham's question. Yeah. So Wickham's question with respect to how the majority will adjust to the new reality of not being racial victims is interesting but weird, right? Um, at a deeper level and taking the objection against Wickham further, one can read her question as naive 
in that her reading of South African reality fails to recognize the epistemic racism that defines the country. This objection does not, however, take away from her timely and incisive analysis in culture beyond color. Rather, the suggestion is that in applying ourselves to the pedagogic obligation that the philosopher owes to their student, our context can truly begin to realize the ambitious hope that permeates the writing of intellectuals such as Wickham, Kunene and Jabulo Ndebele, uh, what is it, in his uh, The Rediscovery of the Ordinary, as but a few examples. That being the hope of achieving a society that is defined by a culture that goes beyond color, a national culture that embodies a South African identity. And that's what my students and I really were pursuing, right, in, in, in this thing. Now, in, contextual, in contextualizing these raging debates as they influence the disciplinary boundaries of philosophy, Mura continues by highlighting that for some philosophy, for some, philosophy comes as a sense of wonder. But then this would make all people philosophers, since everyone at one time or another in life is gripped by a sense of wonder about so many mysterious phenomena. In teaching decolonial theory as contemporary trends in philosophy, the aim is in contesting the epistemic extroversion that has been exhibited by the discipline, wherein it is in a liminal space of de-differentiation de rather where a subject finds itself confronted by historically excluded subjects, so that's philosophy, is confronted by historically excluded subjects, that's black folk, who reveal the politics of the subject by in part demonstrating how the discipline also functions as a form of epistemological discipline. The objective in responding to this prognosis as the student of philosophy finds it in Moore's thinking is to identify alternative epistemic resources that facilitate our ability to respond to the overarching question posed in the course. That being, how do we develop a contextually responsive philosophical approach? The question responds, I suggest, to Prague's concerns of a discipline that disciplines subjects while addressing the call for decolonization. Such a response takes its cue from Unyoka's critique when he observes that the inability to transcend the call for decolonization and to get into the actual business of decolonizing means that the call itself has taken a life of its own. And that's exactly what happened. People use this damn thing to advance their own professional careers and not really thinking about the realities that they're writing about, which is a massive, massive shame. Furthermore, and in demonstrating the political as it is intimately interwoven with the project of thinking, Nyoga's rebuke of empty decolonial discourses that do nothing to respond to the call itself is framed thusly. It is what, and I'm quoting here from him, it is what I call the politics of suspension. Talking about decolonization for so long without engaging in the actual process means that the term loses its, its content becomes irrelevant. In more pointed terms, it becomes vacuous. And I would further uh, add that it becomes a vapid, empty signifier. That means nothing. That means everything and nothing at the same time. All right. Now, in conclusion, uh, because I think I must finish now at this point in time. Uh, in conclusion, I wanted to actually say, you know, I wanted to then focus in on, 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 on what happened during the pandemic. Again, we sent our students home. And I say this gave us an opportunity, really, in the sense that knowledge was seeping into the living rooms, the bedrooms, and the lounges and dining room tables of our students, right? We were teaching this. So students took classes in those spaces, if at all they took classes. But what does that mean, right? What did that mean for us? And I use the example of a colleague at UCT, Ulwazi, Dr. Ulwazi who became the proverbial Socrates, you know, seen to be what was it called? What was Socrates killed for? It was murdered for corrupting the youth. And that's the same claim that was made against Dr. Lushaba in the sense that it was said that he was anti-Semitic. 
Um, because again, what happened in that context is that Ulushaba as a black subject, as a black being, as a black body, dared to actually center blackness in the context of where he was teaching, right? And somebody was so incredibly offended by that, that they took him out of context and wanted to, to have him become the, the, the proverbial Socrates of the 21st century. And what would that have meant? That would have meant a respectable black intellectual, you know, being dismissive of his job because he's, you know, I don't know, he's being anti-Semitic or whatever. And I think this is the thing that we're, that I'm trying to stress here is to say, when we're talking about recognition in the sense of just student frameworks, right, or just student support, there's a lot of stuff that's playing and, and, and there's a lot of resistance as well. We get the resistance from the gatekeepers in terms of the intellectuals, but the resistance also comes from students as well who say, actually, maybe I'm not interested in hearing about the poverty that I see as I drive into campus because maybe actually I don't even see it because I have become so, what is it, immune to the conditions of the people uh, around me in this country. Let me stop there, colleagues, and I think that might set us up nicely for a discussion. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, colleagues. Thank you very much, Cecilia. That was very, very enlightening, especially with my background in agri-science. I wish that I invited the staff members here because this was quite a powerful conversation. Now, we're going to, unfortunately, our second speaker is having trouble joining us. Therefore, we're going to continue with our Q&A session. That also means we can discuss for a bit longer. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you very much for your engaged conversation, Siseko, um, I really enjoyed it. Living with students, I am in Stellenbosch, obviously. Living with students, it resonates so much in what you say. Um, and as a staff member, one constantly reflects on a lot of our practices. And I think um, COVID has given us literally time to go home and to reflect on, on all the things, um, on all different levels. Um, one was able to engage with, with students. You mentioned the different types of students. Um, you know, they're, they're all in our spaces. And um, we see that every day, the things that you mentioned, the, the, the reality of the poverty and, and issues. The one thing that I'm constantly reflecting, I mean, we all form part of staff members from universities. Um, we're part of the elite, all of us. And we struggle to, to see those blind spots. And I've you know, if I've engaged with students on different levels, um, you know, um, we're still part of the elite, uh, less than 1% of people can actually go and study and, uh, in, in this space. And I think the resident space is where I find myself. We try to engage this, to talk about the, the, the reality of South Africa. The, I mean, you mentioned so many things. I don't know where, but the, the, the reality of what you're saying resonates so much. And I think it's constantly for us to start at our own space and, and reflect on our own thinking or what are we doing actually? What are we doing here? Um, and, and what, you know, do we have these conversations? You know, where do we have these conversations? Why do we have these conversations? You know, for me, you mentioned a few times the, the lecture theater. Um, that's, that's a debatable platform if I may, um, what does that mean, what a lecture theater? When we collaborate with students, our structures at the university, the way it's structured, it's, it's, it's a monologue, monologue process, it's not, a, it's not an interactive conversation space um, where we, you know, learn to, to listen differently. So, my, so, so I'll make a few comments. Um, my question to you is, 
I mean, what? How do we change the narrative? Uh, what I hear, we, what I've heard, that we, we often tell what we do, but we don't share who we are as human beings. Because any time when we share our CVs, we talk about what we do. You know, we never start off saying, "I am, I'm ethical," or "I'm." I'm peace loving. I'm, you know, as who you are. You, you, twenty four seven. You are a human being, first of all, and then you do something. Maybe eight hours of the day. Some of us twenty hours. So how do we change that? Get that narrative in our thinking because we all struggle with the same thing. Even today, we introduced ourselves on what we do, and it's wonderful what we do. But we first of all, how do I shift our thinking to what we are to get an engagement of as human beings? Uh, first of all, and and then engage in a lot of the things that you talk, which is uh, absolutely real issues, absolutely real issues, which we all experience. I think we all resonate with that, if I may say so. My question to you. Uh, thank you very much, Johan. And before you answer, Sisego, I'm just going to ask Anas to ask his question as well. Good afternoon, colleagues. Mine will be short and sweet, my question. I just want to know, and you know it's difficult times for students as well to uh, pay for their fees and things like that. So how do, you, how do you envisage and give the youth hope in this challenging times to, to um, give them hope for, the for their studying years? And how can we do it in any tips for, for how we can do it in student, uh, student affairs? What is a practical example to give them hope? Uh, the last question is a very intense question. I must admit it was uh, deep. Uh, that, that is an existential question, Alice. So, so, so you'll allow me to think about it a bit. Um, but, but I think the first question is a bit easier in the sense of, how do we change the narrative? How do we change the script? And I think really what it is, it's, it's, and I think a lot of people have made this comment in terms of the scholarship, but they've not been as direct, right? Uh, go back to Ralph Ellison. Ralph Ellison did a book in 19, I think it was 1912, 1911. And Ralph Ellison wrote the book Invisible Man. And, and, and he wrote that book because I think for a lot of us black folk, we feel very invisible. Um, Franz Fanon in, what was it? It was in The Wretched of the Earth, yeah? Uh, Fanon talks about this idea of the black being, being abroad with the other, always and constantly, but the other being unable to be abroad with blackness. Um, in, what is it? In um, Black Skin, White Masks, he talks about the idea of language in chapter one. He says that, you know, we master and we perfect the languages that are not our own languages in the first instance. Um, and that means carrying the burden of that culture as well, right? Um, I, 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 have been, I have been very, very attentive to the debates of language, for instance, of Selenbush. And I've noted some of the things that have, that, that have come up and how, in fact, Stellenbosch, I think it was last year, in fact, actually, where I told one of the DAMPs in an op-ed to shut up because they were playing 
what is it, uh, footsie, footsie with Stellenbosch's language policy and distracting the institution from actually focusing on what it's doing in terms of actually getting on with the business of teaching, learning and research. So, so, so you know, these are the things that, that, that are curious, really, about, about, about that first question in the sense of shifting the tide. It's about recognition, yeah, and I think for, for, for a lot of us, it's about the fact that as black beings, when we walk into, in, specifically into, into historically white spaces and into spaces that have been reserved for whiteness for the longest time, it is to be recognized for the fact that actually, maybe, just maybe, you know, we, we come into those spaces with a t completely and entirely different world, um, with a completely and entirely different world view. So I think that's the first one. And then to answer Anas's question around how do we give students hope, I think, I don't know. I really don't know. Um, how I found hope as a student and it hasn't been that long ago, actually, because I graduated in, with my undergrad in 2017. I finished in 2016. I finished reading at undergrad in 20 in 2016. And I think what 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 spurred me on was a sense of recognition that I felt at Rhodes University from my intellectuals and academics. I read anthropology, and I read politics, and I read sociology, and I read philosophy at Rhodes. And I remember walking into my anthro class, Rose Boswell, very renowned anthropologist in the country, was teaching the class and she was HOD at the time. She was a professor. She'd just been a freshly minted professor uh, in the year before. She'd given her inaugural in 2013. And, and Rose Boswell actually was so incredible in, in her teaching strategy that here was this wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, and I had dreadlocks at the time, so I did have a bushy tail actually, um, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed first year in 2014, coming into her class and saying to her, I get your perspective, I get what all of these anthropological texts are saying about our people, but actually I have lived this and my lived experience is either corroborating what is said here in theory or actually challenges it. And Rose encouraged that. She fanned the fires um, to say, explore, challenge, think, critique, and that's what kept me going, uh, you know, and, and that's what made me so married to the academic project. Even when students were saying, let it all burn to the ground, I said, hell no, I don't want it to burn to the ground because this was the first place ever in my entire lifetime that actually said to me, dude, you're cool and you actually have valid knowledge. And I was like, I'm not going to let that burn. Hell no. Right. So I think it's about that recognition. That's what. Again, it goes back to, 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 the, to the fact of recognition, right, and, and to inspiring students and to see within students the, the struggles, the turmoil and the hopes that they bring into our spaces, into whether it be our residences, whether it be our lecture theatres, what do they bring and how sacredly do we treat that which they bring into our spaces or do we dismiss it because in dismissing it, we, 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 we kindle a fire of rage, anger, and hate, which then says, let it all be raised to the ground. And trust me, I think the students in this country can actually do that. Uh, they can really raise it to the ground. And I think we need to be a bit more attentive. So I'll stop there, colleague. Um, I see a hand. I just, yes, Anil. Thanks. Uh... 
Thanks, Mbele. Uh, I think my probably uh, my comment would maybe touch on what you mentioned earlier on uh, in relation to COVID and how it exposed, you know, inequalities in our country. Uh, absolutely, I think <laughs> I, I I do agree uh, with you. And uh, if we thought it was it was bad in her education, actually it's worse in basic education. And uh, these are also the thoughts of uh, Professor Janssen in the paper, I think he published it, published it, I think last year, on the impacts of, uh, implications of, uh, of COVID in basic education. And also, I think Badat takes the conversation further into looking into this explicit, uh, 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 poverty that we see, especially in South Africa, and it makes a very good argument there, in which he says, I think it's about time that we look or we relook at the neoliberal, you know, system that we have. I think if we are really honest about the social justice uh, project, in which, by the way, it is also in our constitution. We really, really need to visit the policies that we have in South Africa. Have, have these policies, uh, including in higher education, have they produced or, 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 or do they respond to the, to, to the, to the challenges that we, we are confronted as a nation, in particular, the, 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 the most vulnerable people of our country. So in poverty in South Africa, it's, it's, very, it's very funny the way it was structured by the apartheid. I'm going to stop now. You, you find poverty in the urban areas, and you also find poverty in the rural areas. So how do we then empower our students, that's a question now for you, to not all our students, black and white, because this is not a black project, how do we inform and equip our students to navigate these complexities in order ultimately to achieve some of the imperatives of our constitution? Thank you. I think there's a misconception though, in terms of um the rural community and the rural context. Um, and I'm going to speak as one Otabuga was we have people conceive there's a there's a massive poverty in, in, in the rural landscape or the rural outbreaks of Kwazulu-Natal. And concern, I, I I don't believe that that's the case because Abantu Bayaza, Abantu Bayakoga abantu ubuntu babo bayabuzwa right so you do not have conditions that degrade the humanity of our people within the rural context ngikhuluma ngani ngikhuluma nguzulu ngikhuluma ngezinye indawo engase mhlaphe kuthweke lapho ke hayi there are certain aspects that maybe might be challenging the, 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 this particular claim so i'm not i'm not talking about all and sundry but i think that in the, in the context of the rural in the context of the rural space I wonder whether or not indeed we've got abject poverty as we see it, for instance, in peri-urban areas. 
Um, you know what I mean? So, so, so I think that, that in that context, uh, there's the, the something that we've got to reimagine. And I think the sociologists in South Africa have not been able to quite get that right because they take their lead, for instance, from the likes of Mahmoud Mamdani, who has misdiagnosed the problem quite a bit. Somebody who speaks, what is it? Whereas if we go into those communities of ours and actually do the work, we find actually that is not the case. So in any case, that's not the point. The point that I'm getting at is to say on the question of how do we empower students, I think it's by first and foremost dismissing the falsities that exist by recognizing that within the local communities, black folk contain knowledge. And I think that that's been the summary really of my of my of my talk this, this afternoon, is that black folk actually have valid knowledge, they have valid knowledge carriers. Because and and and, and white students and black students must recognize. Because black students undermine their own knowledge legitimacy and white students leave the university thinking that the only way of producing knowledge is through this system of Western epistemology, which is absolutely nonsense. And I think that we've got to recognize and we've got to cultivate a system of appreciating, drawing from and acknowledging the legitimacy of, of the knowledge that black folk bring into the knowledge production space. Colleagues, let me, let me, Angtate Esam Nthalepans, Nyabonga, Gosazan, Gasbia. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And remember to follow us on Instagram at FEZS Institute and subscribe to the podcast for bi-weekly uploads. Also feel free to send us a message if you would like to collaborate on an episode or if you're interested in one of our short courses.